unfortunately, the way that the system is set up is not for a woman to reach that goal of a natural labor without having to question doctors and nurses and then advocate for themselves. That's why I chose to have an advocate so that I could experience as little trauma as humanly possible. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Carmen, and I'm a certified breastfeeding counselor. And I'm Ruth Green, an international birth doula. And this is the Having a Baby in China podcast. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. The views expressed here are the personal opinions of individuals and do not necessarily reflect any official stance or recommendation by having a baby in China. Hey, Ruth. Hey, Jacqueline. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. How about you? Good. We're on spring break, so just... uh Went to Universal Studios in Beijing for a day. That was fun. Ooh, fun. Yeah, we're going to Beijing um, next week, actually. My kids have a jiu-jitsu competition. Wow. Yeah. Exciting. We're taking them to see the Great Wall because <laughs> my daughter will be 13 here in a couple months, and she's never been. None of our children have ever been to the Great Wall. I think because we went several times with different family members that came over when we first moved here, and then my husband and I were like, eh, we don't need to go again, but we want our kids to have that memory, so. Exciting. So, moving on to what are we doing tonight? Yeah, well, we have another guest, another birth story. Excited about this one. So, hi, Jordan. Hi. Hi, Jordan. Thanks so much for being with us. Happy to be here and happy to talk to you girls, ladies, women, moms. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so yeah, Jordan, do you want to tell us a little bit about you, your family, who's in your family, where you are? Yeah, so we have um, we live in Chengdu, and we have lived here since 2017. My husband works as a math teacher at an international school. I have a four-year-old daughter and a two-year-old son who were both born here in Chengdu. And we're from the U.S. We're from Florida, the Sunshine State. So it's been a a big change coming to Chengdu, but we are coping. <laughs> yeah. Is it a lot colder in Chengdu than, than Florida? Yeah. Like we have winter here, which <laughs> I never had growing up or in any part of my life, really. Like the coldest, um, I, I had seen snow a handful of times and we don't really see snow here in Chengdu, but you know, five months out of the year, we're wearing jackets and coats and all of that. So it was a big adjustment. But now I've come to appreciate getting to experience the fall and the winter and the spring and not just live in an eternal summer all the time. But I definitely miss the ocean. That was a huge adjustment for us. Yeah. Yeah. Just got to move over here to Qingdao. We got the, yeah. I can see the ocean from my window. <laughs> Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, that hurts a little bit. (laughs) Just a tiny sliver, a very, very tiny sliver. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And sometimes we can see the mountains from our window if it's a clear AQI day, which is really enjoyable. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Were both of your children born in the same hospital? Yes, at the same hospital with the same OB, though my OB didn't make it to my second birth, but with the same care, the -hmm. same team. So uh, what type of hospital was it that you went to? So it is like a public-private combination. 
And I don't really understand the details surrounding all of it, but we had, you know, in a public hospital setting, you would have a higher chance of having like a more shared room experience. And we were able to pay a higher price to have a very private room. And Mm. we were the only people in there. It's actually called like the home birth room because it has a living room and it has a refrigerator. Mm. There's a laboring bed and a birthing bed. And we just had to pay that and be able to have access to that room. So I was able to birth in the same exact room for both of my births. Nice. And so then for your second birth, you said the OB didn't make it. Was it just because um, labor was really fast? Yeah, my active labor lasted an hour and a half. Wow. It was very fast. Yeah. And did like, were you in the hospital? Like... Did you get to last? Jacqueline, Jacqueline, that's the second birth story. Today we're talking about the first yeah. birth story. I know. We are talking <laughs> know, about my second birth, but uh, or my first birth with my daughter. Yeah. But for my second birth, I just to like summarize really, really quickly, I was um, already admitted to the hospital because I was oh, okay. put on Pitocin to be induced do- due to low oh, okay. amniotic fluid. So I had been on Pitocin for four hours the night before, four hours that morning. And then once my contractions kicked in to be more than just a menstrual cramp pain, my son was born an hour and a half later. Wow. Yeah. And yes, of course. I'm just teasing. I know we're focusing on the on the first birth, (laughs) but I did just want to get a little little taste of what the the second sneak peek of a future episode. (laughs) Yes. So yes. We don't have all the time in the world to, although I do love hearing all birth stories, but yeah. So me too. Yeah. We're going to focus on your first birth tonight. But okay. Yeah. So let's go back to that first pregnancy. And um, do you want to just tell us a little bit about that pregnancy? Were you trying? Were, was it a surprise? And then, yeah, how did the pregnancy go? So it was a purposeful pregnancy. I got pregnant the first month that we tried, which was really crazy. Wow. You just never know what to expect. So I was feeling Mm -hmm. really grateful, but also very naive. Since my husband is a teacher, I didn't do any thinking about the due date. And my daughter was born the first week of school. Mm. So my husband... (laughs) Like, why Why didn't we ever think about the due date? But we didn't. We're just like, let's start trying to get pregnant. Bam. Yeah. And my pregnancy was really great. I didn't deal with any. I had, um, you know, normal um, nausea in the beginning that lasted till about 15 weeks. The You know, a handful of different cravings. And my second trimester was fine. There was nothing really to like, you know, this is almost five years ago now that I was pregnant, but there was nothing that still sticks in my mind that was absolutely horrific or difficult. Um, I actually felt really beautiful pregnant Mm -hmm. and I felt Mm -hmm. like, oh, Mm -hmm. this little like uterus pouch that I carry in the front Mm -hmm. of my body has a purpose. (laughs) (laughs) There's more reason to be just like really valuing and treasuring and loving what my body was doing. So I remember thinking about that a lot and looking at myself in the mirror and being really proud Mm. of what I was doing. And then my third trimester came around. I will hit on this because I feel like it's important just in case no other 
parent or mom curious about this, but I ended up dealing with um, vulva varicosities, which in my third mm-hmm. trimester became really painful. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it was fine. And it was great. Loved it. And yeah. So that is like a varicose vein, but in the vulva area, correct? Yeah, which is common. It's not super unheard of, but it's not like I had never heard about it before until it happened to me. Mm -hmm. And I was already very invested in learning about birth and pregnancy and postpartum and had never heard about this. So it was totally new when I came across it from my own experience. Did the doctors have any treatment for that? Um, No, there's no treatment for it unless you're not pregnant. I've looked into treatment for it here in China, but it's not super easy to come by. The biggest thing that that you do is you have to find a really good balance between activity and rest Mm -hmm. and be really careful with different exercises that would have like squatting and heavy weightlifting and things like that. Jacqueline, were you going to say you've never heard about it? Yeah, I had never heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that kind of crazy? Yeah. It is a bit rare, but yeah, we don't have to talk about that a whole much because it's not that fun to talk about, honestly. <laughs> but just in case any mom out there who listens to this is dealing with it, she can hit me up and I will help her mm-hmm. out as best as I can. <laughs> yeah. That was my only, you know, sour experience in my pregnancy, really. The only treatment I've heard of is the, what do you call them? Um, Like the pressure counter, what is it called? The pressure pipes? Like girdle type things. Yeah. Yeah. But that's really if you're dealing with varicose in the ligaments. Okay. Dealing with it in that area, there's nothing that you can really do to relieve pressure other than like wearing a pelvic floor like support girdle type of thing. But also living in Chengdu, it's not like I had access to Amazon to just be able to quickly find this thing in English. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of pushed through it because when I even talked to my doctor about it, he just acted like, oh, no big deal. It's fine. Like, don't worry about it. Yeah. He kind of just brushed it off. And you're like, I'm in excruciating pain. It literally felt like someone had taken a baseball bat to my situation. <laughs> so, but I, I pushed through it and then I dealt with it with my second pregnancy again. And by then I knew what to expect. I knew it was going to come back. So yeah. Anyways. No, I mean, I know we said we're going to focus on your first pregnancy, but I am curious, did you then with the second pregnancy face it the entire pregnancy or did it happen in the third trimester again? It happened starting, I think, 18 weeks, 19 weeks, I started getting it. And it just gets progressively worse till the end. And then within 24 hours of giving birth to that baby, bam, it's gone. (laughs) It's amazing how many things. I know. It's amazing. (laughs) But then you're dealing with other things. It's not like you went from some pain to no pain. You just go from one pain to another. So (laughs) that one takes a little bit longer to heal. But yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I do want to go back and ask about how you chose your hospital and maybe why. Yeah, so there's really only two English-speaking OBs here in Chengdu that I Mm -hmm. was able to learn from through Lisa. So I did hire Lisa as my doula. What else to share? We could add like contacts to this podcast if there's moms that end up listening to it that are in Chengdu that haven't met Lisa. 
or that um, are interested in online services because she does offer online doula services. So Lisa is a doula that has been living in Chengdu for many years, like many, many years, I think 15 or 20 years now. Yeah. So she's helped lots of expats over the years and is very experienced. So definitely I'll confirm with Lisa before I put her contact information in the show notes, but I'm pretty sure that she would be happy to hear from anybody that is interested. She is certified through Donut International and then her husband and her also do like first aid training and stuff like that. So they're really a great resource. Right. So I actually don't even remember how I heard about Lisa. I think it might've been someone at my husband's school, another mom, or it might've been from having a baby in China. I think it might've been from both And then Mm -hmm. I feel like I had seen her on the website and then someone at the school started talking to me about her and knew of her because we had a lot of parents at the school who had also lived here for a long time. So I contacted her immediately right when I got pregnant and it was through my relationship with her and what I was learning from her about the system here Mm -hmm. that I was able to be equipped enough to decide what OB I was going to choose. Which as soon as she gave me a summarization of both of the OBs, their priorities, their practices, their statistics, their character, I was able to quickly figure out who I was going to choose. The other English-speaking OB here that works with a lot of expats refuses to work with Lisa in the hospital context because she's a woman who questions (laughs) what people do and (laughs) love her for it. She's a woman who stands up for people's rights. <laughs> Correct. And their bodily autonomy and informed consent. Hello. <laughs> and so then there's the other Obi who I ended up choosing because he does have a relationship, trust with Lisa, and also speaks English. So that was a benefit to us. Mm. So that's why we chose the hospital. Really basic. Like, you got to choose one or the other. And that was it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, what did you find surprising at your prenatal appointments? Yeah, I don't really think that anything about it was very alarming in like a China sense because having Lisa throughout my whole pregnancy from the very beginning, she was able to inform me on the silliest details of what it would be like. You know, when Mm. you go into the room, this is where you're going to go and this is what you're going to do. Like, totally a step-by-step process. Mm -hmm. She let me know that people would be coming into the room. There wouldn't be a lot of privacy in, you know, my appointment times, that the appointments would be fast. But also I have no reference for this is what it's like in the States when you're Mm -hmm. with an OB versus this is what it's like in China with an OB. I already was coming into this situation knowing that I'm not the biggest fan of obstetrics. (laughs) So (laughs) I just was coming in already like, we'll see how comfortable I feel. I don't know. And testing the waters kind of thing. But also on, on the same hand, I had to just be really open to whatever the experience was because I didn't have any other choice. So I had to make the best out of it. But I was surprised the most by coming with lots of questions and really wanting answers and constantly being told, we'll talk about that next time. We'll talk about that next time. (laughs) 
all the time, you know, just deferring to the next appointment. And that surprised me because I felt like, come on, like we're here. This is my time. Let's have a conversation. But it, it definitely was not always like that. So I really had to prioritize my questions and be okay with having to wait till the next appointment to get more things answered. Mm-hmm. I want to go back and ask, so you hired Lisa as your doula, and then you also made this comment about not, you know, being a fan of OB doctors and mm-hmm. just wondering if you would feel comfortable exploring the reasons behind that. And then also talk a little bit about, you know, you had heard about Lisa, but then you obviously had something in your mind that you wanted someone like her that you contacted her immediately. And so, yeah, what was your thoughts behind that? Yeah. So I'm a a totally an advocate for home birth. And if I had my choice, that would have been what I chose. Mm -hmm. And I knew that if I was having my babies in China, which was the decision that we had made, you know, deciding to move here and being at the ages we were, we knew we were going to be starting our family here. I wanted to make my birth team to be the best that I possibly could and utilize Mm -hmm. every single resource I had here in Chengdu and that I could find myself, even if it wasn't a physical resource of a person here, but to build myself up mentally and educate myself about birth as much Mm -hmm. as I possibly could. And OBs historically um, are not the biggest advocates for informed consent. They're not the biggest advocates for allowing birth to be the process that it should be. They are the advocates for interventions and to be controlling a birth and to be controlling the outcomes and to not allow women to just do what we were made to do and give birth and allow us the time and the space and the environment that we need to do that successfully. And so I knew that I would be coming into an environment that I really didn't want, but I needed to make it the best that I possibly could. So Mm -hmm. that's why I chose to hire Lisa and have an advocate that knew what I wanted, knew my priorities knew what it was important to me in my birth experience so that I could walk out of my experience experiencing as little trauma as humanly possible <laughs> and have the peaceful experience that I desired and have the natural birth that I was working towards. So you had a lot of like education looking, you know, what reading birth stories, and then you hired Lisa. Um, and you were saying like, she was kind of talking you through each appointment. Was she also like doing some education? I mean, that is educating, but like childbirth education and, yeah. and things like that. So I did a six weeks Lamaze course with her in her home. This is the class that she offers here in Chengdu. So my husband and I did it together. My husband already knew how much I loved about birth and would I shared tons about it with him before I even got pregnant just to help educate him a little bit. But together, it was really great for us to do the class and be learning stuff side by side and... Mm-hmm. even allow him the opportunity to see other men doing this class and us all mm-hmm. figuring it out together and learning together. And yeah, so we did her six-week Lamaze class. So then with, you know, Lisa educating you, you know, about what to expect 
And then you also being very passionate about advocating for yourself and things that you had in mind. What were some of those things that you felt like you did need to advocate for? And what were some things that did they comply with everything that you wanted? Or were there things that they were like, absolutely no? Right. So one of the things that I would have loved was to have water birth opportunities, but that's not really a thing here in China at all. But my OB actually did tell me that if I brought my own tub and my own cord from the water that he would allow me to have it set up if I was one of those women that wound up with a 36-hour labor, which is what I was telling myself is that I was going to have a Mm -hmm. 36-hour labor. Mm -hmm. Mental long game. But I never ended up using it, which we'll talk about later. But I was really grateful that he did have some open-minded thought when it came to letting women be in the water. I would have been allowed to be in the shower. Having comfort measures in any capacity was important to me. A birth ball, being able to labor in any position that I wanted to, being able to birth in any position that I wanted to was really important to me. Not having a routine episiotomy was very important to me because I didn't know what to expect. Mm -hmm. So I came in with all guns blazing, like you will not do this (laughs) to me. Delayed cord clamping was important to me. I'm forgetting the medical term for it right now so you guys can fill this in. But when any person from the birthing team is putting their hands on the belly and trying to get the baby to Mm. come out, like any type of Mm. physical touch to my baby, any manipulation at all, I had Mm -hmm. no consent towards. I think those were the big things. Um, My baby never leaving my care or my sight at any point. So the pediatrician, once both of my children were born, came into the room to do their APGAR scores. They were never taken anywhere. No baths, no nothing. And as little people up in my business as possible. That was very important to me. If you were not a part of my birthing team, there was no reason for you to be in there. This was not a zoo show for you. Bye. (laughs) So that was important, which Lisa advocated for. Because when I walked in to give birth to my daughter, like five little nurses came in just to watch the foreigner give birth. Can you just speak for a minute about like, I know you've kind of talked a little bit about it, but for listeners, why do you think it's important to hire a doula? So I think that the reason women should hire doulas is number one for comfort. And Mm. that is emotional comfort, physical comfort. And then the second is advocacy. So if you have the goals of a natural labor, natural meaning vaginal without an epidural, if that is something that is ahead of you that you want to fight for, unfortunately, the way that the system is set up in most experiences in hospital settings is not for a woman to reach that goal without having to question doctors and nurses and then therefore advocate for themselves. Whether that be in a situation where a quick decision is having to be made and you need more information. So you need informed consent. Do I want this cervical exam? Do I want additional fetal heart rate monitoring? Do I want another stress test or do I want another ultrasound? Like this is also through pregnancy, not just Mm -hmm. through your birth. Do I want to do the glucose test? (laughs) Like asking yourself these questions, is this system 
that the hospital is set up, which in my mind is kind of like you're just another cargo freight on the train and we're just Mm -hmm. chugging along and everybody needs to go in this way. This is the way that you should go. And if you want to question any of that way, you need a team of people that you trust and feel extremely safe to be vulnerable around as you're making these decisions. And having a doula there is a powerful component as this person that can be there that is not only someone that begins being a friend, but also Mm. is caring for you to have the success that you want and is also going to help guide you as you and your partner make these decisions about informed consent. Is this what I want? Because a doctor is going to come at you and say, you are doing this. You will do this. They're not coming in and saying, would you like to? Can you consider? Unfortunately, that's not the language that's being used most of the time. So that's a huge reason that I think hiring a doula throughout your pregnancy and for your birth is really important if you want to have a vaginal epidural-free birth. The chances of you doing that successfully and without a lot of tears and pain and fear without a doula, in my opinion, is really rare. Mm. Another thing is just going back to comfort measures, when emotional and physical comfort. If you are a mom that already has the plan of having a scheduled cesarean, whether that be a choice or a medical situation, having a doula there for emotional and physical support is huge. Mm. The recovery for a cesarean is massive. That's where even a postpartum doula would be a great benefit to you and your partner. And with the success of breastfeeding and meals and laundry and all of that for a postpartum doula is hugely effective. But if you're a mom that wants, that doesn't have the idea of wanting a epidural free or vaginal birth, but you want to have some additional support, especially living overseas, your mom, your auntie, they're not able to just show up Mm -hmm. at your house as soon as ish hits the fan and things are having to like, you're going to the hospital and this is it. So to have an additional person that is going to be loyal to you is going to be there at the drop of a text message or a call. Hey, we need some additional support for you and your husband, your partner. I think that is invaluable to having a really great birthing experience and then therefore a better postpartum experience. Yeah. So no matter the situation, whether you want it to be all natural or whether you have it in your mind that, you know, you want the induction with the epidural or the cesarean, whatever it is, having someone to walk alongside you, help you know what bumps might be coming up. And as bumps, unexpected bumps come up, walk you through those bumps, like is like invaluable, no matter the situation, no matter your birthing goals. Right. And especially being overseas. I think it's a huge benefit to us. If there is a pool of other women here who have information that we can learn from and benefit from to make our experience better, go get you some. Go get you some of that resource. It's available. So budget for it. You know, that's a that's a big thing that I hear all the time is people deciding not to have a doula because of budget. But I I think your birthing experience is something that you are going to remember for the rest of your life. 
it is never going to go out of your brain as women. I really do believe that. Mm-hmm. And your postpartum experience is the foundation of the beginning of a journey with your child for the rest of their life. And so if that can be successful, it is worth it to me to do a bit of finagling in the budget to make things more realistic for a successful bonding experience for you and your baby and your spouse, partner, husband, whomever. Your people, your village that's there supporting you. Yes. So put all your resources to make it as successful as you possibly can. 100%. Great. So were there tests and stuff that you chose not to do, you know, during your pregnancy? So I actually decided to do all the tests that were available as an informed consent situation. I made this decision because I wanted to quickly be informed of anything that was going wrong in my pregnancy if I needed to make a decision to get out of China and to go back to the U.S. If this was going to be you know, an immediate heart surgery after birth or something crazy was going to be happening, I wanted to be able to have as much information that I could gather in this situation. If I was in the States, I would have probably been one of those crunchy people who only have like one ultrasound to find out the gender and that's it. (laughs) But (laughs) that is not the situation I was in. And so I, and I felt like I also needed to pick my battles. Like there were some things that were super important to me. Yeah. And then there were other things that I felt like I need to just let this go. I've chosen to give birth in China. I'm going to take this nasty glucose test. I'm going to do all the, you know, anatomy scans, et cetera. And the, you know, the non-stress test starting at like 36 weeks, once a week, 20 minutes, whatever. All you crunchy granola people on Instagram can judge me, but you're not living over here in China having to make these decisions. So (laughs) that's what I decided to do. But that was also my choice. And I loved it and I feel confident in it because in the end of the day, it was my decision. Mm. So, yeah. No, that's really great. Thanks for sharing that perspective of it because, yeah, that's something that people living overseas really do have to face is how are you going to approach things if something were to come up unexpected medically? Yeah. Okay. So tell us a little bit about your labor. Did you go into labor naturally or like what was your first sign? So my first signs of labor were my mucus plug coming out and having a bowel movement all within a couple of, you know, this was me on the toilet all in the same time. And it was about 30 minutes later, I felt my first contraction. Wow. So going back to the day before is when I had had my appointment and I had a non-stress test, had an ultrasound, and my daughter's heart rate was really, really low for the non-stress test. And Lisa actually was there with me praise Jesus, because all the people were freaking out and I didn't know what any of those people were saying to me. So Mm. Lisa was able to translate everything, which was really helpful. And so we did, thankfully, we did an additional non-stress test and everything was fine. Did an additional ultrasound. Everything was fine. And my doctor just told me to go home and keep a chart of fetal heart movements. So, or fetal movements. So the next day, 
the day that I went into labor, I was resting, 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 counting, kick counting over and over and over again every hour. Mm. For both of my pregnancies, I actually didn't feel my babies move very much. Mm -hmm. And that felt really nerve wracking. Sometimes I could go hours without really feeling them move at all. And that does make sense with the fact that I went into labor that night. Like usually right before you go into labor, it's very possible that baby's not moving all over the place. But I had been sleeping a lot that day. I took two naps. My (laughs) husband came home, made dinner. We did all the things to help induce labor naturally that you could do with your partner. (laughs) And then literally right away, I go to the bathroom after doing the said thing that helps induce labor that all women should do (laughs) and also enjoy themselves before they go without that thing for a very long time. And so (laughs) then I went to the bathroom to do the the usual pee situation and then mucus plug, (laughs) bowel movement, 30 minutes later, contraction. Wow. And I was like, yes. Okay, (laughs) this is what I want. And I felt two contractions, and it was the feeling of like a rubber band being tightened around underneath my belly into my back. Mm. And it was different than a menstrual cramp or a Braxton Hicks type of feeling. I could feel this was different. Had two of them, and I decided to go to sleep. And I honestly have no idea how my brain was able to shut off and go to sleep because I'm usually a very excited person. Like, Oh, the thing that I've been looking forward to is happening and I can't sleep and I'm dreaming about it and I'm thinking about it. So how many weeks were you? I gave birth on my due date. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So I was 40 weeks pregnant and anyways, I was able to go to sleep. And then at 11 o'clock I woke up again to my contractions. So when did you have that first contraction? What time was that? At 8.45 p.m. I had my, I looked okay. at, my, at my phone when I had the first contraction and I went back to sleep or I went to sleep. I went to bed and I woke up at 11 o'clock to my contractions and I, I think I immediately called or texted Lisa. I can't remember which one. But I got a hold of Lisa and she told me to draw myself a bath. So I decided to do that. I set it everything up. And I was in the bath for maybe an hour or so, trying really hard to stay calm and chill. But my contractions were getting a little bit heavier. And so I decided at that point to get out of the bath and I put a show on. And I just was sitting on my birthing ball and just trying to be as relaxed as I possibly could. But then I quickly realized that I was having a hard time managing my contractions Mm -hmm. and feeling like I could talk through them. I I felt a shift where I had to 100% put all of my efforts into focusing through the contraction. Mm -hmm. And so I was keeping Lisa text, you know, we were texting back and forth. I had my app that I was using to chart how many minutes apart my contractions were and how long they were lasting. And I had some contractions that were seven minutes apart lasting for a minute, three minutes apart lasting for a minute, five minutes apart. There was no consistency. 
And I was waiting for 411. That was kind of my idea. <laughs> so 411, four minutes apart, lasting for a minute for the duration of an hour. That is not really what was happening. I was keeping Lisa informed, decided to wake up my husband when I realized I was having to give all of my energy to getting through the contractions, called Lisa with my husband on the phone, and Lisa heard me going through the contractions and decided to come over to our house. And at this time, I think she arrived at our house around 1.30 in the morning. Okay. And maybe closer to two. So this was all happening like pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And I was really surprised that this quickly I was having to put so much energy into getting through my contractions. I was very not prepared for that. Since you had kind of mentally been preparing for a 36 hour, you know, kind of the idea of like, I'm going to imagine a really long one to have the long game in mind. Mm -hmm. Did you feel a little bit overwhelmed or scared about, in other words, feeling like this is actually really intense, really early. I can't do this for 36 hours. Or did you feel more like, oh, maybe it'll go faster. Like, Mm -hmm. where was your mindset? (laughs) My (laughs) mind, I mean, my mind was really moment to moment as well. It was just getting through this contraction that is in front of me. Like I can't look at the next 10, but I was thinking to myself, I cannot do this for another 20 hours or something crazy. I cannot, I cannot. And I I have no memory of actually thinking that there was another option. Okay. I don't have any memory of thinking I could have a short labor and it be intense for a short amount of time or a long labor. And it's just intense like for a very long time, I really kind of thought that was it. Like, oh, I I remember thinking, holy F, like (laughs) this is really what like beginning stages of labor is like. There's no way that I can do this. There's absolutely no way. But then I grew a little bit more confident as I was able to see that I was going through transition. Okay. Like all of the list of what a woman is going through in transition was running through my head. And then all the symptoms that I was experiencing were coming. Mm -hmm. But that happened later. So like Lisa came, I wanted to take a shower. I wanted to wash my hair. Like that was a priority to me. I was like yelling out, get all my snacks. Like I had been keeping hard boiled eggs fruit. Like I had been keeping everything in the fridge. If I would, would like eat it at home, I was replenishing it for all the things to take to the hospital. I had a list for my husband. Mm -hmm. These are all the things from the pantry and from the kitchen that you need to be grabbing and putting in a cooler bag to take to the hospital. Lisa was literally, this is why you need to hire a doula. Lisa was literally in the shower with me, (laughs) washing my hair and giving me counter pressure to my back. Because I wanted clean hair before I had my immediate postpartum. I didn't want to have to have greasy hair with a three-day-old, you know? <laughs> I, I like to plan. <laughs> so um, washing my hair, doing all that. She's amazing. She mothered me so well. And that was actually a conversation I had with Lisa is I really needed a, a, an expectation and hope that I had in her was a mothering role. Mm. So she's, she stepped in, in that mothering role. And I'm so grateful for that. And so we had to get in the DD. Uh, this is around like 3.30. 
Um, again, what is the term? It's not coming to my mind right now, but the purple line above my booty crack started to show. What is that called? Do you guys remember? Mm -hmm. Isn't it, isn't just called the purple line? Yeah, but there's like something specifically it's in my birth story written down, but I can't think of it right now. So the purple line started to show up and Lisa noticed and she said, girl, we really need to go to the hospital right now. <laughs> we need to be going. <laughs> and so yeah, her <laughs> I can totally picture her saying that. <laughs> we need to go, Jordan, to the hospital right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we had to go down the elevator through the parking garage into the DD. 40-minute drive to the hospital, maybe 30 minutes because it was the middle of the night. Oh, wow. I think it was 30 minutes actually because I have the DD like when it literally picked us up and when it dropped us off. I'm pretty sure it was 30 minutes. And in the DD, it it was not fun. <laughs> and so in the DD is when I went through transition. So I, yeah, Ruth, your face. <laughs> <laughs> When did your water break? My water broke shortly after getting to the hospital. With both my births, my water broke right before I started to push for like the baby actually coming out. Okay. So you're in the car, you're in the DD, you're going through transition. Yeah, I'm in the back seat. My husband's got garbage bags all over the DD. Uh just in case my water breaks, my head is underneath the back window and my arms are on top of the rest of the back seat. So my my uh, chest and belly are laid up against the back of the seat, and my butt is right behind the driver. And I'm going through the transition. My teeth are chattering uncontrollably. I'm getting really cold, but also I am sweating. Um, and its contractions are one on top of the other at this point. Like when we left the house, my contractions were a steady three minutes apart. Okay. And so we get to the hospital and they want me to go into triage. The first thing they asked me to do is sit in a wheelchair. Just like, oh my gosh, sitting down while going through these contractions is absolutely brutal. <laughs> but I had no other choice, you know, and Lisa had prepared me. Like, this is what they're going to expect you to do. And I had told her, and part of my birth plan was I did not want to arrive at the hospital until I was on the 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 train that was taking me to giving birth. Like I wasn't going to just be waiting for my train to come. I was going to be on the train and nobody talking to me, no bright fluorescent <laughs> lights, no nothing was going to stop my baby from coming out of my body. And anyways, I get into this wheelchair and she's the nurse is so calm and collective like everything is and she's all peaceful in her Chinese. I have no idea what she's saying to me, but her attitude is like, oh, girl, you're just like one centimeter. It's fine. No. <laughs> so they take me into triage. They want me to lie down and have my very first cervical exam for my whole pregnancy. That was another thing that was important to me is I wanted to have as little cervical exams as possible. In the States, you get them all the time. And in China, I'm super grateful. That is not the case at least for my OB, not the case. Yeah. Really grateful for that. I think in a local hospital, actually, they generally avoid vaginal exams during the pregnancy because they have such a fear of 
you know, entering bacteria. I have a story. When I first found out I was pregnant, I actually, so we were living in China, mm -hmm. um, but I had gone back to the States for a summer, like, to, and I saw family. And my, my cousin, who I think she was just studying to be an OB at the time, and her classmate or something who was an OB in China was studying with her. And he was saying that, it actually was common practice back in like or like 2000 that they didn't do um, vaginal exams. They did anal exams. Yes, to check that is Because true. they did not want to put bacteria in, mm -hmm. in the vagina and cause like infections. So I actually was expecting when I went in, she's like, just so you're prepared. So actually when I went in to give birth, I was surprised that I didn't get one, but it was just oh, a... I did. <laughs> <laughs> no. During my labor, my first one, my main doctor didn't. Like, she... Yeah. But there was an older midwife, like, my main doctor had stepped out of the room at some point, and I was just really miserable. And so this other midwife was like, well, do you want me to check you? And I was like... Yeah, sure. And then I was like, oh, that felt different than any other <laughs> exam I've ever had before. So yes, those of you who are listening, especially if you have an older midwife, that may be how they are trained to check your cervical dil dilation. Mm -mm. I would have advocated and said no. <laughs> I, you don't know, no, though. No. Like, yeah. You don't know. <laughs> like, you don't know. Like, <laughs> It's just that all of a sudden somebody's sticking a finger somewhere you didn't expect it to go. <laughs> okay, so. Okay, Jordan, back to yours. So <laughs> Your vaginal cervical exam. <laughs> oh, actually, before that, real quick, what time did you arrive at the hospital? I think it was like 4, 4, 19 or something like that. Just right after 4, 4, okay. 4, 9 or 4, 19. There was a 9 in there. <laughs> I like literally went to the DD app and wrote it all down. And so, yeah, I lay down in the triage room. They give me a cervical exam. And I think they also wanted to do like it's common practice to also do a urine test and a blood test. Yeah. And I have no memory if the blood test actually happened. The urine test 100% did not happen because of how <laughs> far along I was in my labor. And so they check me and they tell me that I am only four centimeters dilated. What? And so I immediately, in my brain, my first thought was, I cannot do this. I want an epidural. There is no way. How am I only four? Because then I'm also having, like my logic brain is still there. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's going at 1% is how am I only four centimeters dilated when I know I just went through transition, which, correct me if I'm wrong, is usually around seven to eight centimeters. Yeah. And so I am shocked. And then I'm still laying on the bed. This all happens in a matter of seconds, really, minutes, mm -hmm. somewhere between those two. <laughs> and my water breaks. So I'm laying flat on my back and my water splashes all over the table and all over the wall because my legs are like facing a corner of this room. <laughs> and I'm shocked <laughs> that my water just broke. I'm like, oh my gosh, like it really does feel <laughs> like a water balloon has burst inside 
you're Gucci. <laughs> what has happened? <laughs> and so then they want me to get, oh, this, then they're like trying to tell me to put my pants back on. Because I had taken my pants back off, you know, off for this cervical exam. My pant is literally hanging. My shorts are on one leg. And they want me to put them back on while I'm having these most insane contractions. And the way that the lady said it to me in English was just so calm that I felt so annoyed. Like, why isn't there any sense of urgency in your voice at all? (laughs) My water just broke. (laughs) And at this, the, through this whole situation, Brett and Lisa are taking turns going up to the front desk to make sure that we have all my paperwork, we've paid for everything, everything is squared away, right? So Lisa comes, she wasn't there when my water broke and she came back and my water has broken and then they're telling me to get up and put my pants back on and sit back down in the wheelchair to roll me into the room, I'm like no to the pants okay to the sitting down and they freak out I remember they put like a cloth or some type of thing on top of me because I'm naked going (laughs) throughout the hallways and as soon as we like got I got off of that bed I remember feeling a different level of pressure Mm. but then had to immediately sit in this wheelchair we go into the room and they want me to get into the birthing bed or not the birthing bed the labor bed And as soon as I get up and I put my hands on the labor bed, I get the sense that I need to push. And so I quietly tell Lisa, I think I need to push because this was another part of my plan is that I was never, ever going to verbally let anybody know except Lisa that I felt the need to push because I knew that as soon as I felt the need to push and verbalized it to any of the team at the hospital, I would be immediately told to be put on the birthing bed and I wanted to avoid that bed as long as I possibly could so I tell her and she's like wait don't push you're only four centimeters no 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 I don't believe them (laughs) and so then she has them come and re recheck me and I am magically at 10 centimeters now so I don't know what happened I don't know if the midwife who checked me first or, you know, the nurse, whoever that person was, did a really poor examination Mm -hmm. with just this assumption, like this mom just came into labor or I don't have any clue. Or if I really was only at four centimeters and then as soon as my water broke and as soon as I set, you know, got up that my daughter just engaged right into my cervix and it opened up really quickly to 10 centimeters. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But... What I do know is that (laughs) I was never on that laboring bed. (laughs) And I think I I think I just literally hung on the side of it for a couple of minutes through a couple of contractions and then went straight onto the birthing bed. And something that was very, very important to me was the position in which I birth. Mm. So I told my OB, this is a really funny story. When I told him that I would not, I I never asked. I I just didn't ask. (laughs) I just told him I would not be birthing on my back. That was not an option. And his Mm -hmm. response to me was, but it's so much more comfortable. And my (laughs) response back to him was, for who? Who is that more more comfortable for? 
And he mm-hmm. said, well, for you, you can lay down. I said, no, <laughs> it's more comfortable for you. And you are not the priority. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I am the priority. And I want to ask, is it, <laughs> how do you know it's more comfortable? Yeah. How do you know? <laughs> did, did you do that? <laughs> no, you did not. You did not do that, nor have you ever done it or ever will. I think that really, above all, women should be allowed to choose what position that they want to give birth in. Like if you, without going into, you know, the pelvic outlet and how actually the semi-reclined position is the worst position for the pelvic outlet, you're actually making the hole smaller, not bigger for pushing that baby out. If without going into that, like if somebody wants to be lying down, like that's okay. You know, if somebody wants to be standing, that's okay. If they want to be on their side, that's okay. Right. So, yeah. So good for you for like, that's really interesting. And then I also liked what you said about you don't ask, you, you express what it is that you would like. So instead of, can my husband be there in the room? It's my husband needs to be with me at all times. How does your hospital feel about that or whatever? You know, it's like, this is how I need things to go. How is the hospital going to accommodate for that rather than, well, could my husband be there or could I have the baby on my chest or could I this? It's like, no, this is actually important to me. This is what I'm going to do. How can you support me in this? It shifts the language from like a submissive to a, this is my body. This is my birth. This is how I need things to go for me to feel empowered and strong and in charge in this labor. So that's cool to hear your experiences of actually doing that and saying that. I I love everything you just said, Ruth. I totally agree. <laughs> yeah. So I got onto the birthing bed and immediately, because the women in this room that are doing this birth with me, even though I brought a translated into Chinese birthing plan, I there wasn't even a lot of time to read it, honestly. Things were going so fast. And so I had to be enough in my wits and with Lisa's support to be able to look at all the things that I needed and wanted in the moment. So that's when like these five random people just walked in and I was able to be in my conscious mind and say to Lisa, why are they in here? Tell them to leave. I was able to (laughs) ask for the lights to be turned off and I had already talked to Dr. Young about these things and he was fine with all of them. But in the moment, it's like you have to, you know, remember, I didn't get my essential oils diffuser. I had no music on. I had no twinkly lights, (laughs) but I could remember, please turn the, I hate fluorescent lights in any, in all capacity. Please turn these off. There's not something I enjoy being around. And Dr. Young was totally fine with it. My OB. Yep, get these people out of the room. And then immediately this nurse is cranking my bed to go all the way down, right? Was it a hand crank? I don't know, button, crank, something. Some type of maneuver to move it down. I don't remember. But it was something unwanted and not needed. (laughs) And so I just said, no, 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 no. (laughs) And Lisa was telling them, nope, nope, nope. And even Dr. Young pushed it one more time. No, you really... He ended up saying to me, is it really that much more uncomfortable for you to lay down than it is for you to sit up? 
I said, yes, it is much that that much more uncomfortable. I will not be doing it. Mm -hmm. And so I was in a sitting up, but having my hands behind my knees. Yeah. Um, my legs were in no stirrups whatsoever. No, thank you. I was not, I did not want any of that. And so I just wanted freedom. I wanted my body to be able to move how I wanted it, but I knew they were not going to let me be on my hands and knees. I was not going to be allowed to be on my side. So I had to be okay with this position because at that time I knew this was all that I could get. And Mm. so I, I had to choose to just be okay with this is what I have been, this is what I'm getting right now because it's ultimately, at least I'm not getting the thing that I really don't want. Mm-hmm. Picking our battles. Yeah. And that's a huge part of this whole process. And I, yeah, I pushed for 40 minutes, I think. And she was born at 5.31 a.m. Wow. And I, my OB was telling me, you're doing great. You're doing great. Don't lose hope. You're doing great. And I remember saying to him, I'm not losing hope. I know I'm doing great. Like, I don't see. <laughs> yep. Yes, I am. <laughs> I was full of a lot of confidence, which also I had Lisa saying all these amazing, confident things into my ear. And one of the most beneficial physical forms of comfort that she gave to me was effleurage, okay. which is, you know, just calming the body from like wiping, mm. like physically just putting her hands on my body from my face all the way down to like my butt over and mm-hmm. over and over again. Because every time I was in a contraction, I really felt this intense need and desire to run away. So I was putting mm-hmm. my shoulders up high, like lifting my chin up high and just kind of raising my whole body. And every time I had a really intense contraction, she was just calming me, rooting me back down into the ground. And she was doing that through all my contractions. There's um, a video. My husband was recording my birth. So I have both of my births on video. And right before my last contraction that brought my daughter's head out, I have this huge smile on my face because I know that my baby is coming. And I love that. (laughs) I love that. So so much that in the most vulnerable and what could be categorized as scary situation of someone's life, like this is a huge thing that is happening to your body, Mm -hmm. but it's my body is doing this for me. Like we are, you know, there's this mindset about partnering with your body. And I felt so in sync in that partnership. Like my brain was connected to my uterus and my cervix. And I knew what was happening. And I was Mm going to meet my baby. And so I was so happy about it. And, you know, people talk about having a ring of fire. I don't remember that. I don't, I just Mm -hmm. remember feeling super intense discomfort. Like it's just really intense and a very weird sensation for your cervix to be opening and for this baby to be coming down and out, but also the most immense joy because every contraction, it was, it rang so true in my brain from everything I had learned is every contraction gets you closer to meeting your baby. Mm -hmm. And I was just elated when, you know, her head came out 
when it comes to both of my births, a big thing that I think I would do, you know, if I end up conceiving again and having another baby is I will advocate for no one to be touching my baby once their head has been born. Because for both of my births, they were manually removed from my body. And mm. for my second birth, it was quite traumatic. It was very, the the only, the one and only thing that I feel like was really stolen from me was for my son's birth and when he came out. But yeah, so that would change that. Like looking back, mm-hmm. I don't touch my baby. I do not consent to you touching my baby whatsoever. Like I want them to come out all by themselves. But they were, you know, my daughter was pulled out once her head came out. And there's no, you know, they don't leave time for the baby to turn themselves or any of that to happen. It's just like, oh, baby's out, putting our fingers in, putting behind the shoulders, pulling baby out and doing it. Mm. But I was able to have immediate skin to skin. She was right on my chest and stayed with me until, I think, until they needed to do her APGAR score. And as soon as she was placed on me, she peed and pooped right away. (laughs) And yeah, so right on me. I got her first douse of meconium. (laughs) And they took her, did her APGAR score. And yeah. Thanks so much for sharing all of that. We're actually running a little bit short on time, but I do want to hear a little bit about the postpartum, like mm-hmm. how long did you stay in the hospital and how was the care there? I only stayed for one night. Oh, wow. And even though like wow. the package we bought is four nights, five days, I think, but I wanted to be back in my own bed and in my own space as quickly as possible. So I actually had to end up coming back on the fourth day to sign myself out because <laughs> I should have been there the whole time. And since we were clients of Lisa, they already knew, the team knew what to expect. There was no USAO, I think, is that my saying USAO? it correctly? USAO mm-hmm. coming into the room and trying to advertise their services. None of that. No nurse was coming in and trying to help me breastfeed. None of that was happening. They did come in and were checking for my urinary you know, output and poop output for both me and baby this both of my pregnancies mm-hmm. or births, which totally understand that. And bleeding, I'm sure. Bleeding, they were checking that a lot. That was like normal. I just felt, okay, that's fine. Like come in, check, all done. But sometimes they were checking on my bleeding a lot. And there were a couple of times that I was like, I'm fine. I don't need you to check it again. I'm, I like just changed my pad. Everything's great. Leave me alone. Go away, please. <laughs> So you didn't have the nurses help with breastfeeding. Did you have Lisa help Mm -hmm. you? So Lisa came back again one more time while we were in the hospital and then immediately soon after we got home and then did like a three-day or four-day checkup on us after getting home and then like another one-week checkup. We had at least three checkups postpartum, I think. Okay. Yeah, my breastfeeding – went pretty okay. I read Ina Mae Gaskin's Guide to Breastfeeding book and I got all the things. I, you know, one of the pieces of advice that I give friends of mine who are going to be giving birth and really hoping to breastfeed, especially here living in China, is buy everything that you possibly need to have a good breastfeeding relationship and journey, buy the good pump, buy the good creams, buy the good, all the things, (laughs) because this is not, we do not live in Amazon world. So 
we're not doing five days of waiting for Taobao for this special cream or this thing that might help or this nipple shield. I had everything, every single tool, just in case anything went wrong. I just wanted all of it. So that way, if anything happened, I would already have it in my house. Did you have formula in the house? No. <laughs> okay, I did so not. you had all the breastfeeding t- tools, but... I had every single thing to make my breastfeeding relationship uh, successful because I knew that I could, for my situation, again, this is not everybody in, in China. We have an international grocery store right across the street. So mm-hmm. I knew that I could just walk over to Olay and grab a can of formula. I already knew the kind that I would choose. And, but I was not going to have it in my house (laughs) because I wanted to give myself all of the armor that I needed for the thing I ultimately wanted, which was to breastfeed. Mm -hmm. And so that was my battle. That was my war and everything else was over here in this other world. And, but I had easy access to it, which some women, some parents are not going to be able to just walk across the street to an international grocery store and get that if they need it. Yeah. So if you are an hour and a half away in the middle of some nowheresville, you get you a can of formula and you prepare yourself with all the things you need. What I've heard is to like keep, if, if it's really important to you to have formula just in case, mm-hmm. is to like or keep like it. a specific formula because yeah, or, usually the hospital, the not usually, the hospital will always have formula on hand. Mm-hmm. It might not be the brand that you want. Right. But yeah. 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 But if there is a formula that you want, then to keep it in your husband's office or another building so that like you could get it in the matter of an hour or two, but you're mm-hmm. not just reaching for it. And if you have somebody in the home helping you, they're not just giving the baby a bottle while you're taking a nap or whatever. Right. It's, it, it's accessible. But so, yeah, even if you do live far away and don't have immediate access, it doesn't need to be in because the home. Because typically whatever, like the issue, like it, it, it's difficult, right? But you can most likely get through that moment and mm-hmm. until if it's like absolutely mm-hmm. necessary, you know, yeah, then you can have the the formula in hand. But typically, if you have to like, I have to get through this, then then they they can. You can usually troubleshoot, or and it kind of forces a little bit of time to evaluate your options. You know, so you're not just making a split decision. You're thinking through. Okay, do I really want to use formula? Is this what needs to to be used at this time. Sorry, this is a whole nother topic. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I was just curious because you said you had all the things. I was just curious where on the line. Yeah, I had, but my, you know, my situation was a little bit different with the easy access that I did have to yeah. it, which was part of my plan. It wasn't until day 10 that my daughter and I were breastfeeding without complications. So it took time. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that there's women out there that take more than 10 days and then there's women that take far less. But yeah. for me, it was 10 days. And Lisa was, I remember her coming over to the house and feeling my breasts and saying, Jordan, there's still a lot of milk in there. I'm like, oh, I thought it was just hard because it, there's, that's how it's supposed to feel now. It's like, no, <laughs> <laughs> you need to get the milk out. One of the best breastfeeding things that I had was the Hakka. That really changed my life. And then for my second birth was the silverettes. I used those and they Mm. were amazing. And yeah, I mean, even in the hospital, I remember this was when Lisa had left. So she had already given me like another lesson with my physical baby versus just a baby doll on how to breastfeed. Mm -hmm. And this is not watching videos, you know, you're doing it. And 
you know, my daughter was crying. I was getting hot and flustered and just, oh man, this is really challenging. And even my husband said, do you want to just give her a bottle? Like, is what do you want to do? You know, and he's also for a dad, they're trying to figure out and test the waters. How do I support? How do I not? What do I say? What do I not say? He's letting me off the hook, but also he knows this is important to me. And I just absolutely not. We're not giving her a bottle. (laughs) No way. But thank you. But no, thank you. And yeah, and we did it. We figured it out and it took time and a lot of tears and a lot of crying and a lot of bloody blistered nipples, Mm. but we got there and I'm sorry. She did great. It was, you know, and Lisa helped as soon as my nipples were bloody and I was noticing those little polyps, whatever they're called, blibs, blubs, something. What's the word? Blubs. Blubs. Yeah. (laughs) And Lisa was like, oh, this is what you do. Here you go. And she was like a little magical fairy. She knew exactly what to tell me to do to fix my problem. And it was really an amazing and sacred little postpartum bubble that we were in. And we figured it out and we got through it. I did have a second degree tear, no, a first degree tear. So I had four Mm -hmm. stitches. So that took a little bit of time to heal. And that was my only, my only thing postpartum that, you know, was painful. I did have a couple of freak outs because it was so painful. And I remember Mm -hmm. my first, you know, when my daughter was born, I took no Tylenol or ibuprofen for my postpartum. I took nothing because I felt like that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm not supposed to take anything because then it gets in my milk. And then I don't know. I don't even know what I was thinking. I was trying to be a hero. I think I was trying to, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And for my second birth, I took Tylenol and I took ibuprofen and I still laid down. Even though I felt okay because I was on some pain relief, I was still laying down. And that was, I don't know why I didn't. That is a, a thing that I can look back on my postpartum and wish that I would have just given myself from some pain relief, that I would have given myself a card, you know, to say, this is okay. You can take some pain relief. But I felt like, I felt like I was just terrified that it would get in my milk and something would be wrong. Yeah. I don't think it was until my third that I knew that it was okay to take pain relief, to be honest. And I, by that point, I had a good friend who had been a labor and delivery nurse in the U.S. And she's like, girl, we have, like, we routinely give this <laughs> to every birthing mom. Mm-hmm. This is like what's handed to you in the hospital. Why are you not taking it? And I was like, oh, I'm allowed to do that? <laughs> yes, you're allowed. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Jordan, for sharing all of that. It was really great. It's so cool to hear the passion in your voice. And it's, yeah, it's neat to hear uh, somebody who already had, you know, before they even got pregnant, a passion. And then to see that carried out like through your pregnancy and your labor and your postpartum, like how you were able to apply all of that. And so glad that you had Lisa. She really is lovely. I wish she lived. I need her as my mom down the street. I mean, seriously. Yes, me too. <laughs> she's, she's so lovely. We love you, Lisa. Yes, we love you, Lisa. She's an amazing woman who does really cool things for other women. And yeah. it's, I think part of, part of doula work is that it's women supporting women, which is really powerful. Yeah. 
Well, my pleasure to be here. I'm happy. I was very happy to sit and have this conversation with you guys and share my story. And I, I hope that it encourages other women to fight for what they what they want in their birth and in their uh, postpartum experience. It's okay to make people mad. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You don't have to be the good yeah. patient. The compliant. Yeah. You don't have to be compliant. All right. Well, Jacqueline. Until next time. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Testing, testing. Sorry, I have to do fake laughs because apparently I peek a lot and my husband yells at me. Not yells. Scolds me. Gently.